Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are wonderful. You're wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There's nobody else in the universe like you. We praise you, Lord. We pray that you will now hear our prayers, that you will speak to our hearts, that you will open the word to us as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. I think I'm on, right? You can hear me okay? Tonight we're going to have a topical message, which we normally don't do here at Calvary Chapel. We normally teach through a passage. Tonight we're teaching a topical message, and the subject is the kingdom of God. Uh, We're going to be using a number of scriptures, so I can't get you to turn to a passage. And to save time, I'm going to give, if you want to take notes, I'm going to give you the reference that I use, but I will read it so you want to turn to it and we won't take up too much time. About 2,000 years ago, a very special day dawned in Israel. It was like a day that it never had happened in Israel before. It says in Matthew 3, verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, Make his paths straight. John the Baptist was saying, in other words, turn around, repent of your sins, have a change of heart. The king is coming. It's time to enter the kingdom of God. Now, very soon after John spoke these words, a greater day came a few weeks later, a day Israel had been waiting for for a long, long time, over 2,000 years, the coming of the Messiah, the king of the kingdom of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And guess what his message was when he began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The exact same words that John the Baptist used when he started his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now when you think about this world and the history of it, if you're a history student at all, there have been many kingdoms that have existed in this world. And there are many today. But God himself is the king of the universe And he exercises his will in all countries, all governments, even though all of these countries are not in voluntary submission to God. In Psalm 22, verse 28, it says, The kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. In Psalm 103, verse 19, it says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. In Proverbs 21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Now, we don't see that happening today so much where people are bending to the will of God, but the day is coming when all governments, all nations, all people will bow the knee in complete submission to God. In Revelation 11, it says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now there's a long list of rulers, if you go down through history, who thought they were in charge and defied God. Pharaoh was one of those rulers. He thought he was in charge until God took all the firstborn in Egypt. Then he found out who really was in charge. I will ask you to turn to one passage. Please turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 4. 
This is about Nebuchadnezzar, the king. He thought he was supreme. We'll put it in verse 30, Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. I'll give you a moment to find that. Not that you need it. Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. Raise your hand when you've got it. That's a pretty good number. Then the king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Pontius Pilate was somebody who thought he was in charge. You remember when Jesus was on trial and had already been beaten until you hardly recognized him? He stood before Pilate to hear what Pilate had to say. And Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and to release you? Jesus said, You could have no power at all unless it had been given to you from above. What's going on here, in other words, God is allowing Now, in more to our times, Hitler said he was going to establish something called the Third Reich, and that this Third Reich would last for a thousand years. But not too long after he said that, in 1945, he was 56 years old, he hunkered down in an underground bunker and committed suicide. So there really was no Third Reich that lasted a thousand years. You know, God rules over all the kingdoms of this world, But only one kingdom is the apple of his eye. All other kingdoms are temporal and are passing away. Guess what the apple of his eye really is? It's it's an everlasting kingdom that will never pass away. It is the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? I asked someone tonight, what is the kingdom of God? And he he said he did pretty well, actually. He struggled a little, but he did pretty well. Um, Now, when Jesus asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. I have a definition for the kingdom of God. I believe it's scriptural. I believe that the kingdom of God is every place that Jesus Christ is king. If he's king in your heart, in your life, the kingdom of God has come to you. The coming of Jesus Christ And God's plan for this kingdom was prophesied for thousands of years in the Old Testament. 
Near the beginning of the Old Testament, it is stated the Hebrew nation was being founded for the purpose of blessing all the nations in the world. Then there begins to loom the figure of one person through whom the nation will accomplish its mission. First, he is called Shiloh to arise in the tribe of Judah to rule the nations. Then he is called a star who will have dominion. And next, a prophet like unto Moses through whom God will speak to all mankind. And then over and over, he is spoken of as a king to arise in David's family to be called the branch, the prince, the anointed one, God's firstborn, wonderful, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The exact time of his coming was foretold. He was to be born of a virgin at Bethlehem. Part of his childhood would be spent in Egypt. He would be brought up at Nazareth. He would be introduced to his nation by Elijah-like forerunner John the Baptist. Galilee would be the scene of his ministry. He would work miracles of healing and speak in parables. He would be rejected by the leaders of his own nation. He would be a smitten shepherd, a sufferer, a man of sorrows. He would enter Jerusalem riding on a colt. He would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. The 30 pieces of silver would be spent for a potter's field. He would be led as a lamb to the slaughter. He would die with the wicked, opening a fountain for sin, removing sin in one day. Even his dying words were foretold. He would be given gall and vinegar in his agony. His hands and feet would be pierced. Not a bone would be broken. Lots would be cast for his garments. He would be buried with the rich. He would be in the tomb three days. He would rise from the dead and ascend to heaven at God's right hand. It was told that he would introduce a new language into the earth. That is a new idea, personal salvation. They would offer a new covenant to mankind and give God's people a new name. That he would introduce an era of the Holy Spirit. That his kingdom would include Gentiles and be universal and endless. Are there any Jews here this evening? Anybody Jewish? I know this sister is. That means everybody else is a Gentile. Aren't you glad he includes Gentiles in this kingdom? This pre-written story of Jesus, recorded centuries before Jesus came, is so astonishing in detail that it reads like an eyewitness account of his life and work. Just suppose that a number of men from different countries who had never seen nor in any way communicated with one another would walk into a room and each lay down a piece of carved marble, which pieces, when fitted together, would make a perfect statue. How account for it in any other way than that some one person had drawn the specifications and had sent to each man his part? And how can this amazing composite of Jesus' life and work, put together by different writers in different centuries, ages before Jesus came, be explained in any other way than that one superhuman mind supervised the writing? Jesus Christ, truly the miracle of the ages. For three years, Jesus spoke like no other person the world had ever seen or would ever see to this day. The disciples and the crowd said the same thing. No one ever spoke like this man. Not Moses, not David, not Solomon, not Isaiah, not John the Baptist, not Peter, not Paul, not anyone, only Jesus. And this is why I believe that in the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus put Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, and when Peter was so shook up, he didn't know what to say. And he said, let's build three tabernacles, one for you, Lord, one for uh, Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. 
Now, have you ever been like that when you didn't know what to say, but you said something anyway? That was Peter. And then God spoke directly to him. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Isn't that a good advice for all of us? We need to hear him. Oh, that this world would listen to the words of Jesus and obey the Son of God. Now, thank God the day is coming when every person will hear the words of Jesus. We need to decide, as his people called by his name, that we're going to listen and obey the words of Jesus. And if we haven't been doing a good job, we're going to ask God to help us do a better job. I'd like to ask you to think about something. Just suppose that the Lord Jesus decided to appear and it was announced that he would make a speech at 6 o'clock this evening, or let's say tomorrow evening, and it would be broadcast on every major TV network in the world. How many people would sit before TV sets to watch that? We couldn't count the number that would do it. In Matthew 4, it says that Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. I, I want to ask you to listen closely to the very specific and definite things he said about the kingdom of God as he preached throughout Israel and even before and after the resurrection. In Matthew 5, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven." He said in Matthew 12, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. He said in Mark chapter 1, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In in Mark chapter 4, he said, To you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. Aren't you glad that God has given you an understanding of his word and that you literally tremble at his word and it means that much to you? He says, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. In Mark 4 and later on in the chapter, it says, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground, it is smaller than all seeds on the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Then he said in Mark 10, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? 
And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Do you see why they said no man ever spoke like this man? And then he said to them in Luke 4, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also because for this purpose I have been sent. Do you hear what I'm reading? It's all about the kingdom of God, right? And Jesus is preaching all about it. And then in Luke 7, he said, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. If you think you're least in the kingdom kingdom of God, the very fact that you're in the kingdom of God, the Lord Jesus himself said, you are greater than John the Baptist. That's an amazing statement when you think about it. In Luke 8, it says it came to pass that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And then he said, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And then he said, then they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. That was all said before he was crucified and before he resurrected from the dead. After the resurrection, it tells us in Acts 1 that he appeared after his resurrection for 40 days. Now, if you divide 7 into 40, it's almost exactly 6 weeks. So for 6 weeks after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared many places in Israel speaking to them about his suffering and about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. You can find that in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Before he did that and before he was crucified, he taught us how to pray. And he taught us to pray with the kingdom in mind. I'm going to ask you to repeat after me something that you're very familiar with. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus said the top priority that every Christian has in all of life is to seek first the kingdom of God. Nothing is more important. Nothing else even comes close. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For all these things the Gentiles seek. Your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know, we're in a tough economy right now, aren't we? But you know what? God has a different economy. You serve him, you give to him, and you watch him supply for you. Nobody can outgive God. It's just impossible to do so. How many of you know who J. Vernon McGee is? 
When J. Vernon McGee was a small boy, his dad was killed in a mining accident. And at the age of 14, McGee had to go to work and help take care of the family. He wanted, he, at a very young age, he felt like he was supposed to preach the gospel. And he wanted to go to college and on to seminary, but he didn't have any money. They were very poor. It was 1929. How bad was it in this country in 1929? We think it's bad now. It was really bad then. Uh, something like 25% of all people, maybe close to 50%, were unemployed. It was very, very bad. People didn't have anything to eat. It was very bad. Well, there was a man in the town who had a son who wouldn't listen to him. He wanted his son to have a college education, but his son was a ne'er-do-well. He didn't want to do it. So he decided he was going to send McGee to college. So he paid for McGee to go to college. And then McGee went on to seminary, and he thought to himself, how in the world am I going to go to seminary? I just graduated from college, and he went back to his dorm room. He was very sad. He sat on the edge of his bunk, and one of his classmates who had graduated with him came in and sat down beside him and said, what's the matter? Did somebody die or something? He said he may as well have died. He said, I'm supposed to go to seminary. I was called to preach the gospel, and I don't have a dime to my name, and I don't know how in the world I'm going to go, and it's 1930. How am I going to do it? Well, uh, about that time, someone came in the room and said, McGee, you've got a phone call. So he went out and he picked up the phone. It was from an elderly woman in his church. Now, he remembered this widow woman and another widow woman who was her sister, he used to teach these junior boys, and every Sunday after Sunday school, he would bring these junior boys who were talking and making noise, and they would always sit right in front of these two widow women. And McGee thought that they didn't like him at all because he brought those boys in there and sat down right in front of them. But one of those women was on the phone, and she said, would you stop by my house when, you, when you're through today, this evening? Would you stop by? He said, of course. He stopped by, and they handed him an envelope from each widow. Well, as soon as he could, he excused himself and ran around the corner and opened the envelopes. There were two checks for $250, $500. Well, that night, his Sunday school class gave him a banquet and a send-off, and they had collected dimes and nickels, and they collected $100. So they gave him $100. So there, in 1930 or 31, in the midst of the worst depression this country's ever seen, he had $600. He said, I felt like a millionaire. And he, that $600 put him through seminary that first year. And the second year and the third year, money kept coming in. And he said, you know what? Nobody can outgive God. He's got his own economy. So I'd like to encourage you, if you're out of work today, just remember that you serve God and do what he says. Seek the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be added to you. Then he said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hell fire. Now, everyone is not in the kingdom of God. I'm sure you all know friends, relatives, uh, maybe close family, neighbors, work uh, people you know at work. Not everybody's in the kingdom of God, but everybody who wants to be can be in the kingdom of God. Isn't that a marvelous thing? Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. 
What is the will of God's Father for everybody on the face of this earth? Well, I'll give you a hint if you know John 3.16. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in him should have everlasting life and not come into condemnation but pass from death unto life. Everybody who wants to be can be in the kingdom of God. Nicodemus wanted to be, and he went to Jesus by night, and he said, Master, nobody could do the things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus didn't say anything to answer his comment, but he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But if you are born again, you can see the kingdom of God. The dying thief wanted to be, And somehow, even though he was a thief and a guy who didn't obey the law very much, somehow he knew that Jesus was the king of a kingdom. And he looked to him and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. So if you're here tonight and you haven't received Christ as your savior, you can be in in his kingdom this very moment where you sit, right where you are. In Romans, it says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What are some of the characteristics of this kingdom we're talking about? Well, the first, there are many wonderful characteristics. The first one I wrote down is that all of our sins are paid for and forgiven. We stand clean before God. Can you imagine that? As much of a rascal as most of us have been, we stand clean before God tonight. Don't let the devil lie to you about this. The Bible says that you've been forgiven. In Matthew 9, it says, They brought to him a paralytic man lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And that's what the Lord Jesus has said to you if you've confessed him. Your sins are forgiven. In Isaiah 38, verse 17, it says, You have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. You have cast all my sins behind your back. And the psalmist said in Psalm 103, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. How far is the east from the west? How far is it? Somebody's bound to have an idea. Tony, what do you say? (laughs) Well, if you're thinking like a lot of people think, they think of a map and they go east and then they go keep on going around the globe and it's about 25,000 or so miles, something like that. I don't remember, frankly. But if you go on a tangent directly east out into outer space and you go on a tangent west into outer space and out out into outer space... How far is the east from the west? It's an infinite distance. And the Bible says he's also buried them in the deepest sea. And he will remember them no more. Now, I don't want to pick on the wives tonight. 
But the wives generally don't have a hard time remembering the failings of their husbands. <laughs> and the husbands are pretty bad about that too. They, rem- they have a long memory. But isn't it wonderful that God remembers our sins no more? If you are giving yourself a hard time about some bad thing that you've done, just remember, if you've asked God to forgive you, they're forgiven and they're forgotten. So don't bring up past things to your wife or to your husband. Don't do that. God doesn't. You're not supposed to. I quoted from Psalm 103, verse 13. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. I want to tell you a story about a wealthy family who lived over 100 years ago. They led a quiet and peaceable life. They had one child, a daughter, and they loved her dearly. She was the absolute apple of her mom and her daddy's eyes. When she became a young woman, she fell in love with a young man who was a scoundrel. Mom and dad did their best to try and convince her not to marry him, but she couldn't listen. She loved him so much. Eventually, he took her to a foreign country. They had a son. Because the young man wouldn't work to support them, they fell into deep poverty. In time, he abandoned his wife and his young son. With no skills in a foreign country, this young woman worked in menial jobs. They barely got by. They were cold in the winter. They were hot in the summer. They were hungry all the time. No money except for the barest necessities. She couldn't buy toys or books for her little boy. She tried her best to make up for it by loving him and telling him stories of home. As he grew older, he loved to hear about Grandma and Grandpa, their lovely home, all the good times that his mother had growing up, special occasions like birthday parties, Thanksgiving, and Christmas. He began to ask why they had to live in such poverty. Why couldn't they just go home? to grandma and grandpa. He couldn't understand why his mother felt she couldn't be forgiven. One day for her son, she wrote her mom and dad. She didn't expect a favorable answer, but in a very, very short time, a letter arrived by express mail. It was signed by both parents, and this is what the letter said. I don't know if I can get through this or not. No matter what you've done or how bad you think you've been, it doesn't matter. Please come home. Here are two first-class tickets for you and our grandson. We love you and we are anxiously waiting. Please hurry. Love, Mom and Dad. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. So this mom and dad pitied this this, uh, daughter and their grandson. But God is infinitely more piteous of us. He loves us so much, he gave the greatest treasure in heaven, his only son. And Lord Jesus paid for our sins with his own blood. And now we stand clean before God. So that's one of the characteristics. Our sins are forgiven and forgotten. And then another characteristic is we have an eternal life that will never end. You know, when you got saved, you have eternal life beginning now. Now, your body's not eternal. That ugly thing that you're living in is not going to make it. And, and I can say that if Paul says, this, this corruptible shall put on incorruption. 
And the, the old, I'm talking especially to the older people. You and I, you know how it is. If you think about every experience we have in life has a beginning and an end. We track everything in terms of time. We have calendars and clocks. We observe dates and times and seasons. And integral in the heart of every computer is a clock. The Bible says a day is coming when time will be no more. And we will be in eternity with God. In Daniel 7 it says, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give to them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We have the words of the Lord Jesus that we have eternal life. Life that will never end. And then we experience the love of God. In Jeremiah 31.3, the prophet said, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. When did God begin to love you? When did God begin to love us? I, I asked this question to a group of men uh, a couple of months ago. One man in the back raised his hand. And he said, uh, when he, I was in the womb. And he quoted from Psalm, I think, 39 or 139, I'm not sure. And I said it was long before that. You know, God knows the end from the beginning. The Bible says, whom he foreknew, them he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. And whom he foreknew, he predestinated. Whom he predestinated, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, I don't see any glorified people in this room. We're not glorified yet. We were predestined in eternity past. We were, God chose us in eternity past. He saw us in eternity past. I believe there was never a time when God didn't look in the future and see us. He knows everything, the, the end from the beginning. And he predestined us, and he called us in time, and he saved us, he justified us, and he, it says he glorified us in the past tense. But to God, he, you know, God is not bound by time like you and me. He sees the end from the beginning. I believe in God's eyes, we are already glorified. He can see us now in our glorified state. The Bible says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's no greater truth in the world than what our children learn in Sunday school. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I think I've told you this before, but I'm going to quote it again. Nearly a hundred years ago now, um, a man wrote a song called The Love of God. Some of you probably know it. It's an old song, and he came up with two stanzas himself, but the third stanza he actually got from a poem that was written on the wall of an insane asylum. 
And evidently God reached into that insane asylum and gave some clear moments to that person who was living there and was living there for the rest of his life. But this is what that person evidently came to know the Lord in that terrible place where he was confined. This was written on the wall. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the sky of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich, how pure, how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. God reached down into that Asana Solomon and showed his love to that person, and they wrote it on the wall. Then another great characteristic about the kingdom of God is we actually know God. We don't just know about God. We know God himself. Jesus said in John 17, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In John 10, he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by my own, and the Father, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. So just as Jesus knows his Father, and just as Jesus knows us, we know him. Then, uh, how, how am I time doing? Then we hear, his, that's another characteristic, we hear his voice. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. This is a characteristic of the kingdom of God that you're in. You hear the voice of Jesus. I know them and they follow me. And I'm going to cut out a couple of things here for sake of time. But the other thing about the, one of the other things about the kingdom of God is we have a faithful shepherd. I'm going to ask you to repeat another passage that's familiar to you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now you can do a little better than you're doing. You anoint my head with oil. That's better. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm not going to give you verses for these other characteristics to save a little time. Another characteristic of the kingdom of God is we can be filled with the Spirit of God. And we can talk to God anywhere, any time of the day or night. And then God heals our bodies. I want to tell you this very quickly. This, is, this happened just last week. I was speaking in Antioch, Calvary Chapel, Antioch, for the pastor there that 
David talks about, John Snodderly. Well, when I first went in, one of the pastor's wives said, Pastor, uh, there's a lady here who really wants to say something after you're through with your message. And since it was one of the pastor's wives, I trusted it wouldn't be some person who didn't know what in the world they were talking about. So I said, okay. Well, at the end of the message, thank God I remembered it. And I said, there's a lady who would like to say something. And to my dismay, this older woman, I don't know how old she was. She looked like she was 80 if she was a day. She came wheeling down the aisle in her wheelchair. She had on a, a, a brace on her neck. She had braces on her arms and her legs. And she turned around, and I, and I put that, I had just spoke, I gave that point that he heals our bodies. And I said that if, if you're here today, it means that God has healed you at least once. That's right, isn't it? So she turned around to the people, and I handed her the little microphone, and she said, I want to thank and praise Almighty God. She said, all of you know here, you're my family, that a number of weeks ago I had a terrible accident, and the doctor said that I would never, I would be paralyzed from the waist, from the neck down, and I would never be able to walk again or use my arms or my hands again. She said, but you prayed. You prayed, you anointed me with oil, you prayed, and I want to say to you that I took a few steps the other day, and she raised her hands to praise God. She was able to hold the microphone herself, and she said, I just want to thank my family for praying for me, and I want to remind you that God is in charge, and that he can heal people today. He is healing me. Another characteristic is happiness and joy. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then here's a characteristic that you don't necessarily like so much. There's also persecution that comes. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. And then he said, but blessed are you. When they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who are before you. If you are not ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you mingle amongst people that you know or that you work with, you will pay a price. A price from your friends, your family, people on the job, people in school. And then another characteristic is we have a fantastic future. Um, I want to close it with a true story about a a lady who had an agnostic relative who gave her a hard time about her faith every time the family got together. I think I told the story in the church a couple of years ago, but you don't remember it, do you? (laughs) So I'm safe. Anyway, it's a true story. Well, She knew that Thanksgiving was coming up, so she thought, oh, no, I've got to go to Thanksgiving. My family will be disappointed if I don't show up. So she prayed that she wouldn't sit close to this agnostic uncle of hers. Well, when she showed up, it was a long table, a big family. They had name tags, so they would sit in the right place. And she noticed right across from her was this uncle's name. Did you hear that? Right across from her was the uncle. Well, they all got their places, and she kept waiting for him to give her a hard time. And the whole 
dinner went through by and they were having dessert and he looked across and he said, oh, by the way, he said, what are you going to be doing in heaven anyway? And she prayed and God gave her an answer right away. She said, I don't know what I'm going to be doing, but I know what God's going to be doing. And she quoted from Ephesians. And this is what she quoted. Ephesians 2, 7. 2, 6 and 7, excuse me. He raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Did you get that? In the ages, plural, to come, the Lord Jesus is going to keep on showing us the riches of his grace. And knowing that God is infinite in all that he is and does, he's not going to run out of grace to show us. So as thousands of years pass and millions of years pass, age after age as eternity rolls, age after age, he's going to keep on showing us the exceeding riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. I can't even fathom that, but I know it's so. Like the song says, when we've been there 10,000 years, right, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. When we've been there 10 million years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. Let's pray. Our Father, yours is an awesome kingdom. We can't describe it. We can't even fathom it. But the, the amount that we know, we are amazed. And we are thankful that you are so loving, so kind, so wonderful, so powerful, that there's nothing that you can't do. Even in this terrible economy, you can provide for your people. So, Lord, I pray that you would get, increase our faith and help us to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness so that we can shine as lights in this dark world. Help your people to be the salt and the light. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and close in a worship song.